I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, June 1st. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, it's the first day of hurricane season. We learn about the new tools researchers are using to make sense of storms. Then, how inflation and labor shortages are affecting the state's community colleges. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's the first day of hurricane season, and Jason Dunyon's work is already underway. Dunyon is a hurricane researcher at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA's Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. That's a mouthful, but his job is essentially to figure out why hurricanes happen with the ultimate goal of improving storm forecasts. He he tells us he enters the 2022 hurricane season with one top focus. One thing that we're really interested in this year is looking at rapid intensification. So these are these very rare storms that intensify 35 miles per hour in just one day. And what's interesting about those storms and and challenging is they can go from, say, a Category 1 hurricane to a major Category 3 hurricane in just that 24-hour period. So they're hard to predict. You have to predict not only the environment that might be affecting them surrounding the storm, but also the inner workings of the storm itself in the inner core, so we need to be measuring in that part of the storm as well. So those are hard to predict, but they're also hard to plan for. So emergency managers, folks along the coast who are trying to prepare with a rapidly intensifying storm, things can change very quickly, and and your evacuation plans can can change pretty quickly too. So I, I think that's, I'd say, one of our high priorities this year is to really go after that question of its intensity, but it's these rarest rapid intensity changers where they're hard to predict and they're hard to prepare for. So we're really going to focus on uh, on that this year while we're flying out um, in the Atlantic all the way from, from July to the end of the season. Is, is this research cumulative? I mean, is, is this stuff that you've been kind of tracking over the years? And are you is anything in the data starting to, you know, point towards you know, a couple of factors that might explain the, the, the rapid intensification we've seen over the last couple of hurricane seasons with, with some of these storms that we've talked about? Yeah, good question. You know, some of the advancements we make 
say with understanding, understanding rapid intensification, it can be incremental. It's baby steps a lot of times. But what we're trying to do this year is, is make a bigger step. So we're trying to bring instruments that we can not only look at the environment around the storm, but actually take a, a better look at the inner core of the storm and, and even what's happening in the ocean below the storm, because that's, that's the fuel that, that helps these storms intensify. So it's everything from instruments on some of our hurricane hunters, like lasers that are able to detect the moisture, the temperature, all in the environment around the storm and even in the storm itself. Another laser we're hoping to put on can actually measure winds below the aircraft all around the storm. So to, to give us a better depiction of what that wind field looks like. And as usual, we'll have a, ta- a tail Doppler radar. So this is a Doppler radar like you'll see on the news at night, which is able to give us a 3D, almost like an X-ray look at what the storm looks like in the inner core, all the way from just above the ocean to the very top, getting up toward the stratosphere. So, you know, you start bringing those tools together along with some drones that we're going to test. Uh, there's a few different drones we're going to be launching from our P3 Hurricane Hunters with little spring-loaded wings that pop open. They have wingspans of about six to eight feet. They'll help us measure places that are difficult to measure with our crewed aircraft, like way down, say, a few hundred feet over the ocean surface, but where it's very important to capture observations because the energy from the ocean is is coming into the atmosphere right at that ocean interface. So really, to answer your question, we're we're looking at a, a challenging rapid intensification science question that's been around for a while, but we're trying to bring some new tools to it to try to make some bigger strides and make some bigger advancements. When I think of Ida, I think of Laura, I think of some of these other storms. Um, these were storms that really formed and organized in the Gulf of Mexico. Is there anything different about the conditions in the Gulf of Mexico uh, as opposed to the northern Atlantic that indicate why some of this rapid intensification that, that you're studying that we've seen might be happening? Yeah, there are some interesting differences between if you look farther east in the Atlantic and say the Gulf of Mexico. The Atlantic has a lot of Saharan dust storms that roll off of Africa every three or five days, and they're very large. They're the size of the lower 48 states, and they make it all the way to the Caribbean, even Miami, sometimes the Gulf of Mexico. They bring harsh conditions. They have very dry air. The winds are very strong in these dust layers, um, and they're very warm. So all those three, that kind of trifecta of ingredients kind of suppresses some of the storms that we see. Though some storms can, can still rapidly intensify, even in that part of the basin. The Gulf of Mexico is interesting because those dust storms don't tend to reach that part of the Atlantic as frequently so that the environment's juicier, um, not, not as, as hostile. And you have basically have bathwater in the Gulf of Mexico for a lot of the hurricane season. And a, a really interesting feature is called the loop current. And it really connects the, the really warm water we see down in the Caribbean up to the um, the Gulf Stream up off the east coast of the United States. So it kind of loops around the southern part of Florida, uh, between Florida and Cuba. And every once in a while, that warm river will kind of break off these little, we call them eddies, these little warm warm circulating areas of water, and they, they kind of drift across to the western Gulf of Mexico. So it's almost this constant feed with this loop current of this warm water, um, this energy that can help feed some of these storms that, that helps make the Gulf of Mexico kind of stand out from a lot of the rest of the Atlantic. Hurricanes need to occur in order to learn more about them so researchers like yourselves and forecasters can can get better at predicting them, get better at forecasting them, and which leads to uh, helping 
people evacuate, save lives, things like that. So uh, this might be a weird question to answer, difficult question to answer, but but what is a good hurricane season for NOAA and, 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 your, and the research department when it comes to having storms that meet the criteria that you need to understand them while also, you know, not posing any immediate threat to parts of the United States that, that are you know, very vulnerable to hurricanes? That's a good question because, you know, our mission really is to, to better understand the storms and, and save lives, protect property. So, you know, a storm like Ida, we get a lot of information, but it's also, you know, there's there's this real harsh reality that it's, it's affecting uh, millions of people when they when they make a landfall. You know, some of the storms that, that we get to chase after out in the Atlantic, we might be operating from an island like Barbados, they, they might recurve out to sea. Um, you know, and the shipping traffic usually keeps away from those. So some of those storms are almost ideal laboratory experiments for us where they're not going to make that impact um, for folks along the coast, but we can still learn a lot about the storms, you know, going back to what makes them tick. Why do they track the way they do? Why do they intensify like they do? And why do they have different structures um, as we see them kind of evolve over time? Jason Dunyan is a hurricane researcher at NOAA's Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. Coming up, how inflation and labor shortages are affecting the state's community colleges. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. The Mississippi Department of Education says 73.9% of roughly 31,000 Mississippi students passed the initial administration of the annual third grade reading assessment. The mark represents a fractional drop from 2019 when the state's third graders showed significant gains. That was the last time the state assessed reading before the pandemic put the test on hold. Carrie Wright is superintendent of education. This is after two years of coming out of a pandemic and we're right just where we were in 2019 when we set the bar higher. So hats off to the staff that works in these schools. Hats off whether it's school improvement, special education, doesn't make any difference. But teachers and leaders across this state deserve so much credit. For kids who didn't pass the test, Mississippi optometrists are offering no-cost eye exams. The Mississippi Optometric Association and the Mississippi Vision Foundation are working together on the program as they have for several years. Dr. Kimberly Reagan is board president of the MVF. 88% of students who were tested through the eye exam program, they were found to need some form of vision intervention. 25% of all school-age children um, have some type of vision problem. And we think about 80% of those students don't get the help that they need. Reagan says the program also offers uninsured kids who need vision correction frames and lenses at no cost. Still ahead, how inflation and labor shortages are affecting the state's community colleges. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Mississippi's 15 community colleges offer a relatively affordable education, parts of the state otherwise underserved by institutions of higher learning. Over the past few few years, thanks to both COVID and compounding economic crises, community colleges have become more challenging to operate. Scott Alsobrooks is president of East Mississippi Community College. He tells Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane his school is trying something new this year. They're transitioning to a four-day work week for the summer. First and foremost, the last couple of years have been uh, interesting with the COVID-19 pandemic, but we, we learned a lot of valuable lessons. We learned how to embrace technology. We learned that uh, to some degree we can do a lot of our jobs remotely if we use technology correctly. And some things you can't do everything remotely, but some things we can do more efficiently, and we learned that along the way. But what the main motivator here is, is uh, has been the price of oil and gas, you know, the price at the pump. Many of our employees, uh, you know, are traveling 30, 40, 50 miles to work one way. And, you know, we wanted to help our employees with the pain at the pump that they're, that they're paying. And that, that was the, that was the main motivation for going ahead and, you know, requesting this move with our board of trustees and making sure they were comfortable with it. And, ensuring that we could keep up the maintenance of our buildings and such on a four-day schedule. We did a lot of self-study before we made this move, but uh, we feel comfortable we can operate this college. And many colleges have already done this for a summer work schedule over the years, so we know our sister colleges have done it successfully. And just, but most most notably, it's a, it's a gesture to our employees to help them with the pain at the price of, with the price of gas at the pump and hopefully provide a little better quality of life, giving them a little more time on the weekend with their family and friends and to uh, pursue their hobbies and interests away from work. So the quality of life is important, too. I'm curious, you've mentioned the rising cost of gas. I'm curious about another sort of macroeconomic force at play here, which is the labor shortage that we've seen hitting the whole country and especially in rural parts of the country have you struggled to get and retain staff to work, of course, at East Mississippi Community College, which is in a pretty rural setting? Well, I have to say that our employees that have um, been with us a number of years are pretty faithful and loyal. We've got a great workforce. Typically, you know, they're vested in our, in our retirement system, and I think they enjoy the quality of life that we already offer at our college, and we try to look for ways such as this to enhance the quality of life. So we've had a somewhat stable workforce in most areas. In some areas we've had, we've had a little turnover. So yeah, we felt it to some degree, uh, most notably in some of the jobs that are, you know, where you might've had some people leave and you've t- tried to replace people and replacements that might not have stayed as long and, and not got invested in retirement. We've had a little turnover here and there, but, but I'll say this in uh, certain areas like nursing, we have a, a nice nursing school at this college and, uh, that's become a little bit of a challenge. We've had some folks leave us to pursue some wage wage gain opportunities and travel and other other opportunities, and and we've had some difficulty finding uh, health science workers. So, I would say that's probably been an area that's uh, 
it's had to garner a little more attention from us and a little more outreach to try to find and fill vacant positions. That is an area of concern. Do you know what folks are, are telling you on the way out the door about sort of their main motivators for leaving? I think it's primarily financial. They've just gotten opportunities that we can't compete with at a community college, you know, from a wage. You know, people are, are leaving to go to a certain area of the United States that pays an extremely high wage. We just can't compete. So I think, I think you know, in some, to some, in some cases they're just leaving for for the the uh, economic the micro <laughs> the microeconomic factors there I think that's had some factor in it and we're trying to actually grow our nursing program actually at East Mississippi Community College so we're looking to hire some new positions nursing faculty and allied health faculty and we've been out doing a little investigation and had some job at Rex on the street and uh, we're not we're not getting the number of applicants we once would have. You know, for some of those reasons, and we have, we talk to healthcare professionals. That's what, you know, that's what they're telling us. That, you know, the hospitals and clinics are having the same kind of same kind of issues between everything from burnout because of COVID to greater opportunities out, you know, in, in more urban areas has made it difficult. So we're, we're feeling that a little bit too, even though we're small, we're still feeling that. I'm curious if there's anything I'm missing just about the challenges, the opportunities, the difficulties of running a rural community college at this point in time with all of these sort of unusual economic forces at play. <laughs> Anything else that, you know, it wouldn't even occur to me to think of that might be interesting to point out? Well, I think that uh, we face the same challenges that the rest of the business and industry world face. Because of the price of fuel, you know, community colleges are primarily, we do have some residential halls and we do have students to stay on campus. But for the most part, our students are commuters. In a typical semester, if we've got 3,500 students at this college district-wide, we may have 400 living on campus. So that means, you know, approximately 3,000 are driving back and forth to school every day, historically. What we've seen with in modern technology and with the expansion of broad, what broadband is that more and more students have been moving online. And then you throw in COVID-19 where we forced everyone to go online because of the fear of the pandemic and to try to protect public health. Now, many more students, they're not only comfortable in that environment, it's almost become an expectation that we offer online classes to a higher level than ever before. So right now, as the uh, as the statistics sit, you and I talking at this moment, uh, probably about forty percent of our students are fully online, and about thirty percent are fully coming to a classroom every day, and then the other thirty are some blend of the two. Whereas fifteen years ago, you and I would have had this conversation. Ninety nine percent of our students would have been coming to a classroom every day. It's just changing fast, you know, and I think all of our all of our community colleges are experiencing similar rates of change. And if there's 15 of us in Mississippi, we have 14 other community colleges. We're very close. We're sister, we can, you know, sister institutions. We operate very similarly, and I think everybody's experiencing that. And it's something that uh, you know we're having to adapt to in a rapid a rapid pace, but we're doing it. But it's it's changing. It's the the world of education is changing probably faster now than it ever has in in American history. I wonder, thinking about the community portion of community college, I think something that's 
sort of historically been a part of any American college experience is the feeling of community on campus. And I imagine that's even more bolstered at a place like EMCC where most students, even if they're not living on campus, are living and participating in sort of the greater community in the 10, 20 mile radius, whatever, outside campus. I wonder if there's a different feeling in terms of morale, in terms of community spirit, when, like you say, 70 percent, upwards of 70 percent of kids aren't taking at least all of their classes on campus. Does it just change the feel? You know, it does. The the feeling of walking around our campus is different. And I actually did this uh, several weeks back. I had walked around on Monday afternoon. I had a a quiet schedule and I was walking around and uh, it was kind of quiet. You know, and that's a commuter campus, and it tends to be a little quieter in the afternoons than a residential campus. But it was quieter than what than what I was used to pre-pandemic. You know, and I had the conversation with some of our staff. You know, we look at these numbers and we talk about it, but when you walk around and you feel it, you know, you, you really understand it. And I think uh, the students still want that sense of engagement. They still want. They still crave that sense of environment, or that community environment, and they want to be engaged socially. It's so much so it's funny that. We have a lot of kids that come to scuba and live in the dorm, but they take most of the classes online. They'll, they're still here, <laughs> and they have their little clubs and their social groups, and they, and they you know, they maybe they play a sport or they're in the band, or they're, uh, you know, just here because they want to be away from home and, and experience college life. But they still want to take classes online, even though they're living on the campus and engage with other kids that are in the dorm that's doing it, taking the class online and have little study groups. It's just, it's interesting to watch this change. I don't think it's bad. I think students really will still find a way to socially engage. I don't think it's bad change. I think it's good change. It is good. It's, it's, it's still engagement. And that's what's important. The students are still socially engaging. They're still participating and forming clubs and finding common interests together and finding ways to share that interest and have fun. And I think that's what it's all about. You know, we want them to enjoy their experience at EMCC. When they leave here, we want them to, you know, build, have built lasting, lifelong lasting friendships. We want them to embrace it and, and look back with fun, fondness on their time here. Scott also Brooks is president of East Mississippi Community College. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio coming up at 9. It's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.